welcome back to the Modern Witch Podcast. This is your host, Devin Hunter. Um, we've got a really interesting show today. Um, we've got director Alex Moore, whose first independent feature film, American Mystic, is sweeping the pagan nation. Um, I got a chance to see it uh, here in San Francisco, and it really was a very impressive film, uh, to say the least. It is the first film that I've seen that is shot in a um, an independent light that takes a, a good look at real pagans um, and spiritualists, and really dives into their process and their and their and their mind um, as they're preparing to do certain rituals. Um, it's a really interesting interview, and I'm I'm sure you guys are going to love it. Um, they'll be doing a screening at Pantheacon this year, and uh, I really look forward to seeing it again and uh, having Alex back on the show. But there was uh, it was such an interesting time getting that interview done. We've this this show seems like it's just it's been a rough one this this month um the original interview with alex um that we had done a couple weeks ago um just disappeared and so it actually never recorded onto the computer and it was so she and i had to um get together at the very last minute to record a second interview and so uh thank you alex uh for taking the time out of your schedule to do that um and alex is a really interesting woman she uh, graduated from harvard uh she's worked with mtv news she's an editor at rolling stone magazine um she's worked with bbc cbs i mean she's been all through this and she's such a talent and she's such a beautiful woman um and uh her her mind is just steaming with with all kinds of energy so it was just a pleasure to have her on the show twice <laughs> and uh hopefully at pantheon i can steal her uh, away so we can do an interview um so you guys can see see uh the, the brain behind the film um if you haven't seen American Mystic, you definitely want to see it. There will be a screening at Pantheacon this year, um, and it's definitely one of those things you just don't want to miss. And the DVD will also be uh, released, I believe, um, at Pantheacon for the pagan audience. And so Alex has taken a really good um, stand with the pagan community as far as making sure that we were um, able to have access to the film. Um, she she really looked out for the pagan community with this film. So I, we really need to give her props. And uh, if you haven't seen the film or if you don't know about the film, check it out. You can go to AmericanMysticTheMovie.com um, to see the, the, the visual trailer and to find out information about the uh, the subjects in the film and Alex. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful thing. You might remember there was a uh, an MTV News um kind of featurette uh, where Raven Digitalis was followed and Alex was uh, the person who um, took care of that and so she's been around the pagan community for quite some time and she's definitely a friend and so uh, I was very very happy to have her on the show. Um, we have a roundtable discussion with Storm Fairy Wolf that's coming up here in a little bit. And uh, real quick, uh, so for the uh, 12 Days of Yule contest, if you check out our blog, um, our, which is our live journal account, which I'll post the link up on the website and uh, on our Facebook, um, I am posting all of the, the top three stories um, that we picked here at the Modern Witch Podcast. Um, and I've emailed everyone independently to let them know um, that they won something and that... Um, uh, just, you know, confirm their, their addresses and whatnot. So a lot of really interesting stories were sent in. Um, the top three, like I said, will be posted on the live journal account and we're sending your stuff out. And so this was one of those contests. It was the first one that we did for the show and we're giving everything from books to CDs away, everything signed, um, prints of art. I mean, all kinds of stuff, sessions, um, with me, sessions with, uh, Paul, 
just really cool stuff, birth charts, the whole nine yards. And all you guys had to do was just send us a story in. Um, and uh, I'm covering all the shipping and handling and all that good stuff. Um, so we had a really interesting uh, turnout with that. So stay tuned for the next um, contest because, you know, we'll do it again. And uh, yeah, so, uh, but yeah, check out the live journal account. And we'll definitely post some information and, and all that good stuff about that onto our live journal account. Um, and it, you don't have to have a live journal account yourself to see our live journal. Um, so yeah, definitely hop on. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook. Uh, just type in the Modern Witch Podcast into the search engine on Facebook. I know um, you all have Facebook. So um, check that out and uh, become a become a fan so that you can uh, get all the up-to-date information and all that good stuff. Also, we do have a channel on our YouTube, or on YouTube, um, which is just youtube.com slash Modern Witch Podcast. And um, all kinds of cool stuff gets put on there. And if there's a video that I have seen um, that we end up turning into an audio thing for the for our for this show, um, I end up posting it onto the 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 Modern Witch Podcast YouTube channel. Um, so you can check that out. There's all kinds of cool stuff on there. And um, at PantheaCon in February. We are going to be doing um, live interviews through Ustream again, and uh, those will end up on the YouTube channel as well. So we'll have a bunch of different artists and authors and things like that, and I'll give you more information um, the closer we get to PantheaCon. Uh, the Modern Witch Podcast is hosting a roundtable discussion um, at PantheaCon this year. I can't give you the exact time because uh, we're still working that out, and uh, PantheaCon staff has asked us not to release anything yet. But I can tell you um, it's the roundtable is about pagan leadership in the 21st century. I'll be hosting it. Um, we've got Miss Rabbit Matthews, who is the founding member of Kaya, which is the Come As You Are Coven, which is this beautiful organization here in the Bay Area. We've got uh, Jason Pitzel Waters from the Wild Hunt blog. Um, he also has his own um, podcast called Darker Shade of Pagan, um, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. And we've also got Hyperion from the Unnamed Path. So the four of us will be um, doing a roundtable discussion about pagan leadership in the 21st century. Um, using media formats and things like that. So that'll be an interesting thing where I am going to record it so you can um, see the video later on. Um, yeah, so, and I do apologize. I am under the weather. I uh, I have been dealing with uh, the flu and then, so I'm, of course, you know, I'm healing from that, but I'm still kind of dealing with the aftermath. So if I'm a little low energy, I do apologize. Um, but yeah, we've got a great show for you guys. Stick around. Like I said, we've got an interview with Alex Moore. We've got a roundtable discussion with Storm Fairy Wolf. Um, we've got your astrology for the month of January. And we've got some cool pagan music. So definitely stick around. And uh, thank you for downloading this episode. All right. Well, joining me today in the studio is Storm Fairy Wolf um, for the roundtable discussion. And Storm, it's been a couple of months, so welcome back onto the show. Thank you. It's good to be back. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk about is that whole process of discovering our own witchdom and uh, growing into that and dealing with, um, you know, kind of that secular culture. Um, you know, do we stay in the closet? Do we do we not? When is it a good decision to... Um, the reason why I do this, of course, is because I've gotten a lot of emails from uh, listeners, and there's a lot that are struggling with being in the broom closet, essentially. Um, and I know, of course, in the store, we have a lot of people who come in that have to hide uh, their practices um, from public view. And so I want to know how you came to witchcraft. I was initially drawn to witchcraft from a very early age. I remember 
when I was two years old telling my mother that when I grew up, I was going to be a witch. Um, I'm assuming that this had probably much more to do with episodes of Bewitched than it did any sort of pagan religion, since I was ignorant of that at the time. My main draw, of course, was magic, but I just knew in my heart of hearts that there was something there. There was just this inexplicable draw. And so over the years, I would find myself drawn to TV and movies and books that had um, a theme of magic, a theme of, um, at the time, what was called extrasensory perception, developing one's psychic skills. I grew up in an environment that was very supportive of um, that sort of thing. You know, I, I was born in 1971, and so the 70s were really a big time of spiritual exploration, um, psychic powers, telepathy, auras. These were things that were actively talked about in my household as I grew up. So I just, from a very early age, just accepted these things to be part of truth, just accepted these things. And my personal exploration built upon them. It wasn't until... Uh, it was a early teen that I formally decided to start pursuing the path of witchcraft, which I then at that time began to understand as a religious system. I, I know for me it was, of course, you know, I, I think I've told everybody my whole um, becoming a witch story, but it, um, you know, definitely had a, uh, a very Christian mother and uh, my father was pagan. Of course, they were divorced, and so I got to be a, a summertime witch um, full-time, and then I got to, during, you know, the, the, the winter months, and when I was at school, I had to hide everything, and so I had, I had hidden candles that my mother could never find out about, I had, mm -hmm. um, I, I remember I, I would collect, um, go to yard sales, and I would collect, like, glass bowls and, um, vases, and I would fill them with, um, salt and different rocks and you know creek water and things like that and i would and i would use them um and and what essentially was a ritual but i didn't know that at the time you know and i remember um i took this beautiful green candy dish that i had found and i filled it with epsom salt and uh, my mother used to collect those or she used to get she used to collect for me i should say those um avon bottles that look like uh like cars and they were filled with cologne and so she'd find them in just random places, and she and I had this big collection of them. And I remember I would pour the cologne into the center of this candy dish that was full of salt, and I would catch it on fire. And it would be like these beautiful colors, you know. It would be like this green flame or this pink flame. And I don't advocate doing that at home because there were several times that I almost caught the house on fire. <laughs> um, but at the but then I later on found out. Oh no, that's a very um, Dianic witch kind of a thing, mm. actually. Um, and of course, I am a Dianic witch. And so all those kind of experiences up to that point really just kind of reaffirmed that I was, I was something a little different. But I didn't know I was different. You know, I, I knew I was a psychic kid. I remember growing up and having a lot of experiences and, and I was so thankful for a family that understood that and understood what I was going through. Um, and really was supportive of that. Uh, my mother really helped me get through a lot of those kind of psychic moments where I didn't understand what was going on. Um, because even though she was, she's a, and she's not necessarily a Bible thumper, but she's definitely a, a strong Christian personality. Um, she, she understood that, um, some people are just gifted, you know, and so she was able to, to help me, you know, find people that could help and, and, uh, took me seriously and that, so that was all, that was really cool. But I came to witchcraft 
quite naturally from the development of my psychic, my psychic abilities, my psychic senses. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I, I remember waking up because, uh, and quote unquote angel, because that was the vocabulary I had at the time, um, told me that my mother was going to be in a car accident and I needed to tell her to wear her seatbelt. And so at the time, you know, this is back in the eighties and my mom just was not wearing a seatbelt. You know, you didn't have to, it wasn't the law. And uh, I remember waking up and throwing a temper tantrum, begging her not to go to work, begging her not to go to work. And uh, I walked her out to her car and I made her put on her seatbelt and it's the middle of winter. So there's snow everywhere and ice on the roads. And uh, she'd take back roads to get to this nursing home that she was working at. And, um, and so I walked her out to the car and made sure she had her seatbelt on. And then she got in a car accident, you know, about 20 minutes later and it totaled the car. And, um, if she wasn't wearing that seatbelt, she would have died. And that, and from that moment on, she took me very seriously. You know, <laughs> she listened to what I had to say and I'd come back in and I'd hear her gossiping on the phone with one of her friends. And I'd say, you know, I don't think God wants you to do that. I don't think that that's, that that's good. You know, and, uh, you know, this angel just told me this, you know, but that was the context that I had to use. And as I got older and I developed a larger vocabulary and I became very aware of um, the fact that these weren't necessarily angels. These were my spirit guides. These were her spirit guides. These were, um, you know, people who had passed on that I was interacting with. I, remember, I was at the mall once. And I was checking out a really hot guy. And I remember I was standing in Claire's with my friend who was buying earrings, and I was completely bored because why, why would I be in Claire's? And uh, this really hot guy with, like, a bald head and dark complexion, this gorgeous man, was walking in the food court. And I said, hey, check that guy out. And she looks over, and she can't see him. She had no clue. And I'm, like, pointing at him saying, no, he's right there, he's right there. And she just had no clue. And uh, eventually I just was like, oh, okay, well, that was weird. And then I left, you know, we left, we came back around and, and, uh, he was, he was at some other place in the mall and uh, she still didn't see him. And so I, I kind of came to that conclusion. Oh, this is something that's a little different. You know, you're out in public, you know, there's a, there's a, some sort of uh, being there. And so I was, I was okay with that though. You know, that was all part of my, my life. It was all very natural to me. So even though I knew I was a little different, I didn't realize how different I was from secular society. Um, mm. You know, and even up to the point of, you know, my, my self-initiation, that was a very powerful moment for me when I was, when I had just turned 13. It was the summer that I was 13. I, I self-initiated myself and um, self-initiated myself. Hmm. It's an interesting sentence. But so I went through my self-initiation and it was a really powerful moment for me. It was a really wonderful energy exchange. And that's when I knew that this was who I was and there was no going back, you know, that this was my path. And that I had, I did have a talent for working with people mm -hmm. and understanding what their experience was, what they were going through and being able to kind of transfer that into an energetic language. Um, and, and so through that, I just kind of ended up becoming this priest, you know, essentially. And I officially, you know, had accepted that role, um, for my community when I was living in Ohio and, um, ended up, Going through and I got, you know, all my initiations with uh, Wicca and got my third degree. And then I was just really unhappy. I was not impressed uh, with my initiation. Uh, it left a lot of um, personal questions unanswered. And I know you've had, you've had a couple initiations yourself. Uh, what, after you were initiated into the craft, what was that, that experience for you? How did you feel? Well, what I consider to be my, 
initial initiation, I suppose, uh, my, my true initiation into witchcraft, um, was like with yourself, um, a self-initiation. You know, I, I usually refer to it now as my self-dedication rite. Um, I was 14 years old, and um, based on scant materials that I was able to piece together in a good, healthy dose of my own intuition, I wrote this ritual that I performed in my suburban backyard underneath the full moon one night, totally in secret, of course. Um, but this was an offering to the goddess of the moon, who I knew at the time as Diana. And it involved an apple and a candle and, and some stuff and some things. And um, that's when I consider myself to have been made a formal witch. I made a declaration, a promise um, to the old gods um, um, in exchange for their guidance and developing my own soul, my own abilities. Um, since that time, I've received formal initiation um, into um, a few different established witchcraft traditions, most notably the fairy tradition, um, that have all had their own level of power and promise for me. Um, I will say that of the formal initiations, the most powerful and foundational that I've received was in fairy. Um, but that actually had a pretty, on the surface, negative reaction when I first received initiation um, back in early 2002. Um, I actually went through a period of probably about five days where I basically had an existential crisis. You know, at that point, I felt totally cut off from the source. I totally felt cut off from magic, from spirit. Um, these things that I really, I hadn't recognized it up until that moment, but up until that time, I had taken those things for granted. You know, I, ever since a very early age, you know, I always was a spiritual child. I was always keyed into, um, what I really felt to be um, um, this larger vibration, you know, that I knew that what we saw in the physical world, there was something more than what was going on. And so it wasn't until my fairy initiation that I felt cut off from that and I experienced what it was like to not have access to that spiritual energy in my life. And I felt much smaller as if a huge one of my senses was just totally cut off. Now, looking back now, I recognize I absolutely needed to have that experience in order to appreciate this connection that I've had. And, you know, as a child and then, you know, since, you know, at about five days after my initiation, everything basically went back to normal. And I was kind of left there trying to reintegrate, you know, this experience into my life. But different traditions that I've had initiation into, they've all offered something different. They've all given me an opportunity to further explore the depths of my own soul, which I really think is what initiation is all about anyway. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And now after um, I went through and got my, my third degree um, with, with the Wicca, I was, I, I did, I felt, I guess disconnected is a good term, is a good way to kind of look at it. Um, and a lot of that to do with, you know, I, I was trained to be this, this priest, and when I walked out of that ceremony, you know, that night I was, of course, feeling a little buzzy. And, and uh, I remember going to sleep, waking up the next day and just feeling lost. I mean, just woke up in a really weird place spiritually. And I realized that I, I loved the energy current that I was given um, through my initiations with Wicca, but it didn't speak to me. And part of that is because, yeah, I'm gay. And, um, of course, there are some issues that arise being gay and Wiccan. And, uh, and so 
because Wicca, traditional, you know, Gardnerian Wicca and Blue Star Wicca and, and the other different, they're not really, they don't cater to the homosexual um, experience. And partly because it, when, when they were really formed, it didn't really exist. I mean, homosexuality was still considered to be a, uh, a type of mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, so it just wasn't brought into the tradition. So it's nobody's fault. I don't, you know, it, it's, I don't think that uh, Gardner himself, you know, was out to get uh, out against the gays, even though, you know, we've got some quotes <laughs> from him. Um, but I, essentially, that, that's what, not what the tradition was built around. And so I realized, yeah, I got something really beautiful from it. But as far as teaching it, as far as um, kind of regurgitating that information, I couldn't do it. And uh, I, I was very scared by that. And so it, it was a couple months of, of, of really just feeling low, you know, and, and kind of realizing that, oh, I've got a lot um, that is unanswered for myself. And so I, I, I ended up going through a really scary time with that. And eventually I came out realizing that it didn't matter what initiation I got. It didn't matter what tradition I was a part of. If I'm not making it my own, then what the hell's the point? You know? Yeah, and one of the things that I find as well, I think it's easy for anyone, especially in the modern day, to become disillusioned when receiving some type of spiritual initiation. Mm -hmm. And the, I think that the reason is primarily is because we grew up in a largely Judeo-Christian society mm -hmm. that is based on a religion of that which is revealed. Mm -hmm. You know, and so we hear in this religion, we have a book and all of the answers are purported to be in this book. Mm -hmm. No matter what your an your question is, the answer is going to be here in this Bible. And we're from an early age, we're keyed into that modality of thinking. Right. That religion means giving you the answers. Right. When I think in reality, religion ultimately is a toolkit for learning how to find the answers on your own. Right. Right. I, I don't think that religion should give you any answers. I think religion should teach you how to ask the right questions. And in this, I think witchcraft is, I won't, don't want to say unique, but it certainly um, stands as an alternative, a functional alternative to mm -hmm. the larger Judeo-Christian um, modality of thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, again, which, you know, is much more about that, which is revealed, you know, um, Wicca, um, and other branches of witchcraft are much more about observation, you know, focusing on ob observing the seasons. And, and that to Wicca and to uh, nature-based religion is, you could consider that to be the holy book. You know, nature is the book to be read and it's changing all the time. And our job is to observe and see how these things interact together. And what does that have to teach me about my life and cyclical nature and how, how does energy move? I, I think I've always looked at like religion as um, the the frame of a house. You know, it it's not the foundation, it's not um, the roof, it's not the, the the siding or the flowers that are planted in front of it. It's it's the, the kind of the you know it's the wood planks that keep the develop a room that make a room a room. You know, behind the all the drywall and all that good stuff. It's just it's the frame of a house, and so it's a structure that is meant to be built upon. It's a structure that is meant to grow. It's a structure that is meant to be purified and cleansed and redeveloped. And, you know, and you're, and it's meant to be painted. It's meant to be, um, you know, put a different architecture placed upon it. You know, it's meant to, 
to be something that's alive and breathing and happy. And it's, you know, it is, it's the foundation of a, it's the foundation of the personal temple. I like to think, you know, it gives us our structure as we're learning it. It can give us a framework, but essentially how you decorate is all up to you, (laughs) you know? And that's kind of the way I've always looked at religion. It's, it's all about understanding that at a baseline, this is how we can, this is the modality in which we can, we can discover, you know, what, what colors look good together, but essentially it's all up to you, you know, and if it's, if you're not making your own, then, then there's no point. Now, one of the things that I did want to kind of bring up and I wanted to pick your, your piece, your uh, priestly brain on, um, is this, that concept of once, you know, you've gone through, you've become, you know, you, you know that you're a witch, there's no getting around that. And, but you're living in a situation or an environment in which you can't be open about it. Um, what do you suggest for people who have to live that kind of double life? Well, that kind of brings up to me um, something that you touched on earlier in your story about needing to kind of keep things secret, you know, from your mom, you know, keep, you know, like candles and such. And I remember, um, again, in the early teen years, um, I actually had in, in my desk inside my bedroom, I actually made a false bottom in one of the drawers. And um, on top, it just looked like there was, you know, school supplies and stuff in there. But if you were able to remove this false bottom underneath, I had my tarot cards and my candles and my crystals and little charms and my handwritten book of shadows and all of these things that I knew would really not be accepted as accepting as my mother was of things of a psychic nature. She was an ex Catholic mm-hmm. and she carried all of that baggage with her. And so things like tarot cards, those were no, no. Um, I remember a Ouija board. I, I saved my um, allowance and I remember going to Mervyn's, which is a little now defunct department store out in these parts and um, purchased a Parker Brothers Ouija board. And I remember using it by myself um, early on. And um, um, so these were these were tools that I had hidden away. Um, I, I think that for people today coming into the craft and, and recognizing that this is their religion, um, you really have to examine your environment to decide whether or not that's even a good idea, you know, to, to come out. Um, certainly, there are going to be instances in which, in places in the world in which that's just not safe. You know, I recognize I live in the Bay Area of California, and it's a fairly liberal area. You know, and there's a lot of resources for, for pagans, so much so that it's actually difficult, I think, to build pagan community because everybody knows somebody else who's pagan. There's just rampant down here. And it's a double-edged sword. But one of the protections that's afforded us by that is that people don't really bat an eyelash so much. Um, in fact, that's weirder. If people are prejudiced against people who are pagan and, and, and witches, that seems weird and archaic. Here where I live. So I recognize though that that's a bubble, that mm-hmm. I live in a, in a pretty little bubble and I love living in my bubble. Um, also, this told me that because I was fortunate enough to live in this bubble of safety, that perhaps it was my job to be more public um, because that I feel will help others who don't have that choice. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who is living in the Bible Belt, who lives perhaps under the very real fear that maybe their their home or their place of business will be vandalized or their way of life will be threatened if it is revealed what religious choices they have made. Um, that this is a very real concern. I, I, I do still hear of 
um, child custody cases in which uh, the religion of one of the parents is a deciding factor or a big part of the case as to whether or not this parent is even allowed to to see their child. So there is a lot of prejudice and ignorance out there uh, about witchcraft in general. Um, so I, I think that really this is something that needs to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. I think that if people find that they are secure enough in their life, then I encourage people to come out of the broom closet, quote-unquote, um, because I think the more of us that are out there as public witches, the better it will be for the movement in general. But I think that people really need to understand where they are coming from personally. It is a courageous act, and no courageous act is without risk. And I, I realize that even in my bubble, you know, there is some risk at me putting myself out there. I'm very accessible. You know, the, the address of my store is, is known. It's on, it's on the web. People can contact me. I do get people from all over the country calling the store, asking to talk to me, asking random magical questions. I get emails all the time. Um, and so, and some of those emails that I have received and some of the letters that I have received have not been kind. You know, I have received some, um, rather threatening, um, correspondence, you know, in the time that I've been a public witch, you know, telling me that I'm going to burn in hell and, and whatnot. And so I recognize even in my bubble, there is some risk. There is, um, you know, um, some risk to my personal safety, but I think it's relatively low. Um, and I think because of that, it's important for me to be as public as possible because maybe me being public with my religious beliefs will help somebody else who can't be public, but it'll let them know that they're not alone. But I think that for everyone to kind of come to this um, question, to, to approach this question on their own, you really have to look at what your individual situation is. Not everybody has an accepting family. You know, years later, my mom is very accepting of my religious choices. You know, she has actually been to um, um, witch rituals that I have performed, um, and she's gotten benefit out of that. I've read cards for her on many occasions over the years. Um, but not everyone is as fortunate to have friends or family members or co-workers that are as accepting. So again, kind of like when I came out of the closet for being gay, I had to really weigh my choices. I didn't come out of the closet till I had moved out of my house. I did not want to be put in a situation in which I was turned out onto the street. And a lot of people are. So it's one of those things of really needing to look at your individual situation. Now, I, I, I agree with you. Um, but, you know, being somebody who is from the Bible Belt mm -hmm. um, and, and lived that life, uh, yeah, there's, there's a constant fear of, of you know your business and I've and I worked for witch stores um, or you know occult pagany kind of stores that were um, in the Bible Belt you know at the time I worked for a couple different stores and there was there was you know we I'd have people showing up and uh, picketing and reading the Bible you know through a uh, a, a, a what do you a speaker phone kind of thing you know and at the store and shouting things out and and then you had you know um, people leaving crosses at on the front doorsteps of the business and just all kinds of crazy stuff. And then again, you know, with, with my, with, with the way that I grew up, it wasn't okay at all to, to be practicing. My mother did not want that. Um, she was okay with the psychic stuff, um, but she was not okay with, with practicing witchcraft. In fact, uh, when I was, I don't know, I was like 15, I think, um, she, she and I went, were having, a, we had a really rough time. 
and um, she took the door off my room because she found that I was practicing witchcraft. She found a couple of books. And uh, so she took all my candles, all the candle holders, all the incense, and remind. And I want to remind you that as a teenager who's not driving to get that stuff, it's hard. <laughs> you know, that took some effort. And uh, but she threw everything away. And so I remember waiting until she'd gone to bed, and I snuck outside of the house, went through the garbage can to get as much as I possibly could get back. You know, and even then, like she 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 had I guess like spilt soda on stuff so that I couldn't reuse it, and like. She was, she made sure that I wasn't allowed to do this, you know, and it made it very difficult. But I also think that, you know, now, of course, I'm like, I am a witch and there's no getting around that. I'm really happy that I'm a witch and I like what I do, <laughs> um, you know, and, and now she's to the point where I think she can accept that I've, I'm practicing something different. But I, if she had her way, I would be, you know, a minister for a church and I'd have a wife and you know, 2.5 kids and all that stuff with a white picket fence. That's not going to happen. You know, I, I want a black fence and I want you know, a, you know, a cool little cat with tufted ears and, you know, and I want kids at all. That's just not my gig, you know, but whatever, you know, to each his own. Um, but now she's gotten okay with things, you know, for the most part. Um, there's still things. I still get emails, you know, trying to convert me and, and you know, all that good stuff. But I just kind of take it in stride now, you know, for the most part. Um, because that also speaks about my spiritual development. You know, I, I credit my mother actually, even though, you know, I grew, we, I, I, you know, of course we practice different faiths now. I credit her with a lot of my spiritual development because of, uh, you know, she was kind of the matriarch of the family. And so her views on God were very, very big impressions upon me. So even if, even if I switch the name of God to Diana, you know, I still I still hold a lot of that that kind of sacred nature of your relationship between you and God right. to be very seriously. And so I credit my mother with a lot of my spiritual development, um, even though it didn't go where she thought it was going to go. Um, but, you know, the big thing with me was that I had to learn to make my craft something that wasn't um, so different. And I learned to take that what we you know, we think of witchcraft being this this great spiritual practice. Well, I had to make it mundane. I had to make it fit into my mundane life. And so I had to kind of put altars in places that didn't look like altars. You know, I had a, I, when I, of course, I was a very musically inclined uh, teenager. And so I had to, um, I put a bunch of like my music theory books on, on a shelf. And I put um, some just like scores that I had and I kind of put them around and I placed little statues of musicians on there. And that was my music altar. Mm. And I would light candles, you know, and I would do things there. Uh, I took crystals when I was able to go get some crystals. Um, I took some crystals and I placed them, um, you know, in, in, in the, on the windowsill. And I told everybody, oh, I just like the way the, the light looks when it comes in. But that was my altar to nature. It was my connection. I could see the crystals. I could see the these beautiful, you know, farms out my window. And I was able to really look in and the moon would shine right down on it. And so I was able to make that a little altar. And so I had to really cultivate the ability to still practice and uh, make my mundane life and my spiritual life a very unified thing. Um, you know, so that even if I didn't have all the candles lit, even if I didn't have all that stuff going on, you know, it, it was very little, very, you know, large ritual in my life at that point in time. Um, I could still have my personal practice. I could still have my personal connection to things, but I had to learn to decorate, <laughs> you know, and that was kind of the trick to it. And then once I did, it was all great. You know, it was beautiful. And I learned to, to kind of, you know, sneak a plant in here and there, 
you know, that was kind of charged with the, with the intention that it would help keep me safe. You know, I had, I had ivy plants everywhere at one point in time in my room. Um, and the whole point was that it was to protect me. It was for my protection. And so, you know, those kind of things, it was just creative decorating, you know, and that's how I got through it, essentially. Um, and then when I did have my moments, you know, when I, when I had the opportunity to have a, a spiritual experience as a pagan, I seized that opportunity. You know, I really, if, if I had even just an afternoon to myself, I drove off to the woods somewhere or, you know, I walked down to the graveyard and I just had moments, you know, where I could commune with the spirits. I could commune with nature. I could draw down the energies of the god or goddess and I could be a part of that, making my experience essentially something that was really um, personal. And I think that's what it all gets down to is that the, the, the beauty of being an outwitch is that you have all of this access to the outside world, the outside pagan world. When you have to be closeted, you're very much limited on, on what your practices can be and what your practices um, can include. And so when you're, when you're out, you know, you can be a part of big rituals. You can go to all these things and you could, you know, you can um, sign up to lists and get emails and things like that. When you're closeted, you can't. And so you're, you're very much so disconnected from the community in a lot of ways. And so your, your practice has to become very personal. And, and it should be personal. I, I think anyway, your, your magical practice should be very personal, but even more so. I remember I had an aunt, um, when I was growing up, try to talk to me about witchcraft. And she said, well, if witches weren't bad, then why do they have to practice in secret? Mm -hmm. And I, of course, I, I, I look back on that now. And I was just thinking about that the other day. And I look back on it now and I want to be like, well, for the same reason you have sex in the dark, you know, but, and she wouldn't have gotten any of that. She just wouldn't have understood that. And so, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the mentality, you know. I, I look at, at one point in time, it was necessity for witches to practice in secret, for fear of death. It was necessity. And as the neo-pagan movement has grown from those days, we still hold on to that idea of secret and, you know, how to keep our practices secret and why that's an important thing. And, and I think we don't so much need that these days. Well, I think there's been an unfortunate conflation of the ideas of secret and sacred. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that being in a path such as witchcraft in which our mythical history um, includes this idea of going underground, you know, to escape the authorities, um, that it's really enshrined the idea of secrecy as being equated with that which is sacred. You know, that that's really a way of honoring our traditions and our ancestors of, of, of witchdom is to keep our practices secret. Um, I actually disagree with this assertion. I, I do think that in traditional craft, um, there are things that are and should continue to be secret just on the level of kind of keeping it within the club, you know, basically giving people access to um, a shared egregore that's, that's only, or a thought form, you know, that kind of ties everyone together. But I disagree with this blanket assertion that the way that we keep things sacred is to keep them also secret. I think that really that time has for the pre, has pretty much passed that um, in occultism and the craft specifically, um, there is a lot of information that was previously considered secret that really doesn't need to be secret anymore for just the reasons that you were talking about. That really, I think the most, for the most part, 
secrecy in the craft was an act done from necessity. It was for self-protection. Mm -hmm. Again, even like up through like, you know, the 40s and 50s, um, depending on where you are even now, um, to proclaim yourself a witch or practicing witchcraft is going to um, bring along the charges of Satanism and cannibalism and killing babies and all sorts of nonsense that um, just incites violence and, and ignorance. And so it has been better for people to keep their practices secret other than having to deal with the mob mentality that invariably ensues. <laughs> um, however, again, going back to my idea of the bubble, you know, me living in the Bay Area of California, um, there's a lot more information available freely. People talk about things freely. And so I don't feel that that is a necessary thing um, to adhere to. Um, in my own um, tradition of fairy, you know, there has been a lot that in the past was considered secret that is not considered secret anymore. I know that within the fairy tradition, it's still a point of controversy because different lines and lineages will consider a certain material secret. Other things are not so secret. Again, I go back to this moment um, of um, this idea that, well, really things were secret in the past because of physical necessity. Um, there are certain things now that I think are helpful you know, for people to know, you know, out of my own tradition, that's uh, aligning the three souls or just knowing yourself, anything that helps you to um, become better aware of who you are in your surroundings. I don't think that those tools should be secret from the general populace. I think that more of those things should be shared. Absolutely. Well, Storm, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. And uh, you can, Storm is also doing a ritual at PantheaCon, um, and we'll have all those details next month for you. So if you're going to be at PantheaCon, you have a really good chance to, to meet with Storm, and uh, I'm going to drag him to the roundtable discussion that I'm going to do, so if you're a fan of the show, you can meet him as well. Um, in the meantime, uh, I guess we'll talk to Storm again next month, and stay tuned. Right after this break uh, and this little musical interlude, we're going to have an interview with director of the featured independent film, American Mystic, director Alex Marr. When you are searching for spirit, it's time to enter the Mystic Dream. We are a spiritual and magical marketplace in Walnut Creek, California, specializing in books, music, crystals, classes, and art, to inspire the mind and delight the spirit. The Mystic Dream, where ancient wisdom meets the new aeon. Find us on the web at www.themysticdream.com. Uh-huh. 
Joining me here today in the studio is director Alex Marr. Alex is a Harvard graduate. She is an editor for Rolling Stone magazine. Um, she's worked with MTV News. If you remember a few years back, there was a, uh, an, an interview and kind of follow process that was done with Raven Digitalis for MTV News. Alex was behind that as well. Um, on top of that, she's worked with BBC, CBS. I mean, she's been everywhere. So this, this, this woman is incredibly talented. Um, and she has this amazing background, and she turned her eye to uh, developing an independent featured film called American Mystic, which is now touring and uh, has been kind of all over the world, essentially, and has made a very big splash in the pagan community. Joining us here today to talk about the film is director Alex Marr. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, it's good to be here. So, Alex, your your film, American Mystic, uh, has been everywhere. And you, you went to Tribeca, and I know I got to see it here in San Francisco, and you've been traveling all over the world, essentially, with, with this movie. How's the response been? It's been great. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I had the, um, the really great experience of having, you know, we had the world premiere at Tribeca earlier this year, and the audiences were really terrific. Um, and in, uh, I was in Poland recently screening the film, and, uh, you know, the fun of that is you see a completely different kind of crowd, and the Q&As are always different each time, so... 
so Alex, American Mystic is the first full-length featured independent film that really shows paganism in, in a positive light. Um, and I have to say, you know, when I got to see it, I was completely blown away. I was really impressed um, with the fact that here, here you are, you're not a pagan, um, and you've walked in and you follow three very interesting subjects. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your subjects in the film? Sure. The the film takes uh, takes the approach of, of looking at three different people who are all uh, in their 20s in very different parts of the country who um, essentially, you know, live outside of the mainstream in different ways in order to practice their faiths. So uh, there is a young Lakota Sioux um, who lives in the Badlands in South Dakota and um, he sun dances there. And uh, there's a young man named Kubla who is um, training to become a spiritualist medium and healer in upstate New York. And um, and then finally, there's Morpheus, who is um, a pagan priestess. She's she technically is a fairy priestess, and she lives way off the grid in in Northern California. And um, I'm sure a, a lot of your listeners will know her as as the Morpheus behind uh, Stone City, which is a pagan sanctuary that that basically we managed to capture in its earlier stages in the film. So those are the three characters that that, that we follow in in the movie and we go back and forth and you start after a while you start to sort of see um you know while their practices are so wildly different you start to see some of the human connections and some of the universals that uh apply when you know basically we're looking at at, at a bunch of young younger people who are trying to find some sort of meaning in their lives so um so that's that's pretty much the story so what prompted you to want to direct a film such as American Mystic? Well, I, you know, this is something, you know, I've talked about a little bit before, Devin. It's, it's sort of, um, I, I kind of think of myself as someone who's always been a little bit tweaked. You know, I've, I've just always, I've had pretty much a lifelong fascination with, you know, what does it mean to deliberately live on the fringes? What does it mean to um, to go out of your way to become part of a community that is sort of an outsider community or off the grid in some way? And um, and especially, you know, what, what goes into living outside of the mainstream because of your beliefs? Um, I was raised partly Catholic by uh, my mother, who is Cuban and Spanish, um, and, you know, at the same time, a liberal and a feminist. So that's kind of a really confusing cocktail right there. <laughs> but um, but I, I, I was raised with a real fascination um, with uh, the level of, of ritual that goes into Catholic practice and the stories and the martyrs and, you know, high mass. And um, as I got a little bit older and started to question uh, that whole system, what really stuck with me was how exotic a lot of those rituals were, especially if you looked at them as an outsider. And I started to kind of draw a parallel with, you know, how many other spiritual groups are there out there where at first encounter, I might really not know how to relate. Um, is it simply that I just don't come from that tradition? And is is there a way to maybe you know, what's the line that the through line there, what connects all of these different practices that may at first seem very exotic from the outside. So, um, I'd spent time with a lot of different groups around the country for different stories that I've done in the past. And, um, when I had the chance to make a feature documentary, I, I sort of, I, I knew pretty quickly that, that what I wanted to do was somehow 
you know, connect the dots between all of these different groups that I'd been drawn to. So um, I spent, um, at the end of the day, on and off about six months casting the film, which was this incredibly intense, rigorous process. Um, I was in rural Tennessee and in Alabama, you know, all over California, of course, uh, in the Dakotas. Um, and and I, I met with people who practiced, you know, any number of traditions. And the idea was, you know, to really stick with people who are um, outside of, you know, the big three religions and, and, you know, could not be considered part of some sort of mainstream. Um, so there were people who, who defined as, as pagan or neo-pagan. There were people who, you know, I, I spent time with some serpent handlers in the South. I spent time with, uh, you know, of course, spiritualists in different parts of the country and um, some more kind of uh, neo-Christian groups that were a little bit um, more radical. Um, but I knew, I knew at the end of the day, I wanted the film to really represent a side to spiritual practice in the States that we don't see very often or at all. I mean, I, I was frustrated from my time in the media and um, as an editor at Rolling Stone and, you know, just doing different things in the mainstream media in the States. Um, I was really frustrated with this idea of America as, um, you know, this monolithic Christian culture. Everyone's an evangelical. You know, <laughs> if you watch the news, sometimes it's the impression that you get. And certainly that's the impression abroad sometimes. So, uh, and if it's not that, then you're a member of a really... Um, kind of freaky religious cult um, where, you know, that's inherently negative. And, and I, I just knew that wasn't true. So I wanted this film to be um, about a different side of spirituality in the States that, that, you know, we don't see on screen. Alex, why these three people? I mean, what, what kind of set them aside uh, when you're going through the process of screening and, and figuring out who you really wanted to include in the film? Why was it these three people? Yeah, you know, I guess a lot of it, and, and I'm sure a lot of filmmakers will say the same thing, a lot of it is about going by your gut and a sense of intuition. Um, first off, you know, with, with a documentary, uh, there's the challenge of dealing with subjects who, you know, they're not trained actors, they're not, uh, you know, you need to find people who um, are actually comfortable on camera. Um, and that's, that's as simple as it sounds, it can make a real difference, especially when you're, you're asking people to share something as sensitive and as private as, you know, their, their faith. Um, and then I had to find people who were actually brave enough to share that part of their lives. And I had some, um, there, there were a few people, especially in relation to this small coven that I spent time with in Tennessee, um, there were two individuals there who such would have made really wonderful subjects, but they were they were legitimately afraid that that if they were outed as witches, that they would lose their jobs and that they would potentially be unsafe or their families would be unsafe. Um, but then also there was the sense of a balance. You know, what whoever I showed in the film, I, I, I really wanted there to be a sense that, you know, you're showing a scope of what is being practiced in in uh, in the States. Um, so those were some of the biggest challenges. And then, you know, I went by uh, Kubla. Kubla has such wonderful qualities on screen. He's this, he's the youngest of the three. He was about 25 when we shot the film. And he's this very kind of, um, you know, athletic uh, kind of linebacker type guy. And uh, he breaks horses and bales hay to make money. 
And um, in his, uh, you know, non-existent free time, he goes out of his way to um, study spiritualist practice and try to connect with spirits on the other side. And I just found that, you know, as as a character, he just seems so complete and compelling. And, and someone like Morpheus, it, you know, part of it was um, she's so charismatic because um, she's also a belly dancer. So she had this sense of understanding, you know, okay, it's, it's, we're making a film, let's collaborate, let's do this. But um, she was also, I also caught her and her husband, Shannon, at this interesting moment where they were embarking on this really incredible project of turning, you know, a hundred acres of land in the middle of, you know, really like kind of the boonies. You're, you're, you're an hour's drive from the nearest town, well into the mountains. And um, they, they were really in the process of turning that into, you know, community property and a real sanctuary. And um, so I think sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's personality. It's, it's also catching someone at the right moment in their life. Um, So hope, you know, Hopefully that gives you a sense of the thinking that went into it. You had a, a really beautiful chance as an outsider to go and, and see a very intimate part of these specific spiritual practices. In the film, we get to see, you know we get to follow Kubla, who's going through this this beautiful training process. And I know a lot of pagans have um, kind of the sympathetic view where they really appreciate the spiritualist movement. And a lot of what we consider to be neo-paganism is derived from the work and from the spiritualist movement. Um, And we get to see Chuck, who is preparing to do Sundance. We don't get to watch the Sundance happen, of course, um, but you got to to be a part of of that and kind of cultivate um, a a view, an opinion on that. And then, of course, when you're following Shannon and uh, Morpheus, you get to be a part of some rituals. And we, you know, so we get this really intimate um, kind of outsider's look in to these practices. What was that experience like for you coming from, again, you know, you're coming from this Catholic background and, you know, of course, you have your eyes wide open. Um, and there's a lot of curious uh, curiosity there. But what was that like for you to kind of be a part of that as an outsider? Well, it's it's uh, I mean, of course, it was fantastic. It's I I I've always thought that, you know, any project you take on should be basically an excuse for an experience that you personally want to have. So so uh, this, you know, the whole process of making this film was just a giant excuse for me to be able to travel the country and talk to people and ask um, ask questions and really explore for myself as well. Because I don't, and this is something I would tell everyone that, who I met, you know, I, I, I consider myself to be some kind of believer, but I, I don't, I don't know you know, how to describe what I believe in. I know, I know that I, I definitely feel like there's something important out there, but, um, I've never identified strongly enough with one particular practice or another. So, so, um, you know, any time that I was welcomed into a ritual, it was great. It was this incredible opportunity to, you know, to, to feel things out. And, um, basically, I mean, one thing I should mention too is, uh, you know, you have, there's certainly been a lot of um, documentaries, you know, whether on TV or, or on the big screen that, um, you know, touch on on uh, spiritual practice. But th- this one was very much, I really kind of um, wanted to make sure that it was told through the words of, of the subjects themselves. So, so what you'll see if you, if you, if, you know, your listeners watch the film is it's, you know, entirely voiceover and moments with the characters. There are no outside experts. There's no sort of, uh, there's no one else chiming in. I'm not personally injecting my own opinions into the film. 
Um, although, of course, you know, uh, it has a certain slant, you know, that's from my perspective. But um, it really was, you know, that was a big part of the pleasure, too, for me, because, you know, I have hours and hours of interviews sitting down, you know, for instance, with Morpheus and just, you know, we did some of these interviews. They were so intimate. Some of them were just, you know, at midnight sitting in our rental car uh, in the dark, you know, with the moonlight streaming in, recording audio, just going on and on about, um, you know, how she was drawn to fairy practice and what, what it feels like to be a priestess and to lead ritual. And what does it mean that she works with um, you know, the goddess, the Morrigan, and, you know, what's that relationship like? What does it feel like when a god or a goddess enters the room during a ritual? Um, the sort of things that you, you know, these aren't everyday conversations, and it's, um, it, so it was, it was really thrilling for me. And at this point, of course, I've spent so many, uh, you, you know, so much time and, and been a part of so many different rituals with different um, pagan uh, subjects, they've become a little bit like friends. And, you know, the running joke is that like the clock is ticking on, on me becoming, you know, like joining, joining the tribe. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so it was just an incredible opportunity and, um, you know, really transformative in a way. Alex, you were, you were able to take the film overseas and, uh, you were in Poland, you said, and, you know, of course, over here in the States. And so it's had time to circulate. What has the feedback been from the pagan community about the film? Well, there's, okay, that's a good question. Um, you know, very few people in the pagan community have seen the film in its entirety so far. Last year at Pantheacon, um, we screened a teaser of about 10 minutes of the film um, just to give people a taste and to let them know that this was on the horizon. And the response was very, very intense. It was great. Uh, there was so much curiosity. And, um, you know, I wasn't entirely sure what to expect, but it was unanimously the response was, oh, my gosh, we can't believe a film finally exists that that um, shows something real about the way we practice. Um, so that was really exciting for me that it's it sort of struck a chord, and then um, the San Francisco screening that you were at had a very strong um, uh, pagan uh, contingent in the audience. Um, so I, I think in general it's been really really positive. Uh, it's just that very few people have seen it so far. So we're really excited because uh, it's now all set that we're we're going to do um, a special screening um, at at Pantheacon this year of, of the entire film. Um, and we're also going to exclusively release the DVD of the film at Pantheacon um, and, and through Pagan and New Age outlets for the first few months of the life of the DVD. So that's going to be really fun. It'll finally be a chance to kind of get uh, mass reactions from the community. So let's take a listen to um, the trailer for the movie. Um, and you guys at home, definitely listen to the, the tone of, of these subjects. Some people, when they ask me about my religion, they say, so you speak to dead people? But what do you believe is dead? What is death? My goal in life is to do as much good in the world as I can, and sometimes that might mean doing some strong magic. A lot of Indian people were converted to Christianity back in the early days. There wasn't a lot of people that practiced traditional Lakota beliefs. Or that pole that's on top of the tree, there's a rope that goes over, and they pierce one on his flesh. 
I'm studying to be a medium in the spiritualist church. I believe mediumship with spirits is possible. We affirm that communication with the so-called dead is a fact scientifically proven by the phenomena of spiritualism. I saw your aura and it was very well lit. There is something very powerful about witchcraft and that will always be a little bit threatening to some people. Lord of the wild hunt, Lord of life. I don't go around and convince people that I'm all about sweetness and light, because I'm not. The Sundance, we prepare for it all year long. They'll take a scalpel and cut like a slit. A lot of things are hidden from our eyes that you have to become part of a group to understand. I have a gentleman who comes in here who would have been uh, fairly tall. I have a lady that may have had cancer. I'm aware of a gentleman behind you. He comes with a huge hug for you. What God gave to us was our flesh and we give that back to him. Piercings. Buffalo bones. So a lot of men make a commitment. Pierce. We start to sing. The rattles will start shaking on their own. You see lights, flashes. I'm seeking the full depth and breadth of what creation has to offer. You hear spirits talking like you're almost in a different place. My thoughts have never been like the regular 17-year-old. What I'm thinking is, how can I obtain the ability to speak to God? Alex, um, you were actually invited to to be a part of, of uh, some of the rituals at Stone City. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Well, it's it's a... Uh... It's interesting because by the time I, I ended up at Stone City, I'd had a, a small taste of, you know, uh, ritual practice, um, you know, through through this whole casting experience. So I took part in a Beltane ritual in Tennessee and um, uh, another ritual elsewhere in the country. And uh, so, you know, so I wasn't completely a newbie but of course i i still had no idea what i was getting into um at, at stone city there was um you know i took part in a solstice celebration and and eventually halfway through the filming process um i was invited to take part in in uh, Sawin, and that for me was really the most um the most moving and the most intense because um you know, because it's such it's such a heavy, serious um, occasion. It's not it's nothing like it's, you know. It's sort of the flip side of Beltane, and there there was so much energy in the room. I think there were about sixty people involved um, that night, and um, a few people in the room had recently had a good friend pass away. So th there was just a lot of a lot of uh, the sense of communing with people you love who are now on the other side and uh and um one of one one priest in the group um actually channeled um Hermes which was completely uh you know amazing to to witness and um you know whether or not I'm not really in a place to 
to determine whether or not Hermes entered the room or you know what what was actually going on. Um, but I do know for a fact that the there was really something happening just just based on the energy of of all of those individuals gathered together and and focusing and um it was really moving um and i know that morpheus that night you know she she took me aside and said that that it made a really big difference to her for our relationship in making the film that i that i had taken part and the cameras were off of course for for most of that ceremony um but i i think i think for her it made her feel like the line between me being sort of like this outside observer, you know, watching from a comfortable distance and and participating like that line was sort of erased. And and I think um, that seemed to be a good sign for her, you know, that that I was really uh, sincere and wanting to kind of understand where they were coming from. Um, so and and certainly I had, you know, when we were shooting the film, it was just me and our, our cameraman cinematographer, Greg Mitnick, who's just really, really wonderfully talented. I mean, the film looks so beautiful. And, uh, and then our sound guy, Nick, and, um, so they really were really good sports. They, they, they took part in everything. And, um, and I think, I think it was really eye opening for them as well. It was none of us in this little crew had, had ever taken part in, you know, in, um, Sawin or Beltane or what have you, um, and in the spiritualist community, you know, they had never been to any uh, any services. You know, they'd never received messages before we started shooting. So it's it's sort of um, I think because of the topic that that we were capturing, um, it was a lot more of a personal experience than maybe with with other sorts of of documentaries. You know, this this wasn't about politics. It was about something that you know faith is is such a personal thing. And, um, you know, whether or not, uh, whether or not I'm now going to turn around and, and, you know, become a spiritualist, uh, you know, that, that sort of was beside the point. It definitely got under my skin and sort of changed the way I think, um, I look at spiritual practice. You know, one of the things when I was able to, when I was watching the film, I was really impressed with the level of respect, um, that, that you and your crew, offered to the, to these people who you were following and especially when it came to the rituals and and one of the, the things that really sticks out with me is um chuck's story um about him you know preparing for this sundance and then you know we we pretty much see almost everything leading up to that point where he, he walks in and does the sundance but i was really amazed at uh, specifically because you know uh, the Sun Dancers are very, very private. It's a very, very, um, I don't want to say secretive, but they definitely keep outsiders, you know, away from, from their sacred duty and their sacred acts. And you were able to to be a, a part of that process and see that, which is something that's really, really rare um, for, for an outsider to be able to walk in and be a part of and cultivate a relationship with, uh, with the Sun Dancers. Um, and you got to actually sit in and and watch the Sundance happen. Of course, like I said, it's not in the film, but specifically, what was that like for you? Because that that's an experience that a lot of outsiders don't have. And I know you're not an expert, um, but just you know, from a personal standpoint, what was that like? I've never, I I have definitely never uh, witnessed anything like what I saw when I was. Um, invited to watch this Sundance. And I, I don't think I ever will again. I mean, it's, there's, there's just nothing comparable, um, to my mind. The, for, for, for those of your listeners who might not know, it's, it's, 
you know, typically a, a Sundance involves uh, four days of uh, fasting and um, and dancing in front of a, a, a holy tree that's been erected inside of uh, this circle, this arbor. Um, that's putting it really, really simply. Those are the basics. But um, this with this group, they're a little bit younger and their medicine man who's briefly in the film, uh, Jerome, he's sort of known as the youngest uh, medicine man uh, ever on that reservation, Pine Ridge. And um, they kind of take pride in doing a little bit more of a physically intense version of the Sundance within this group. So these men um, pierce uh, with buffalo bones, um, but a number of them also hang from the tree uh, through piercings in their backs. And it's um, that's really a reductive way of talking about this. But, you know, there's a lot more going on spiritually and personally for these men. But... Um, I mean, I, I've never, I've, I've never witnessed something so moving. It, it basically the first night of the Sundance, I thought I saw, I think, maybe eight different men hang in succession, and um, you're seeing them. These are these are sort of very uh, jockey, athletic, regular guys um, who are who are very friendly. They're just they're kind of like dudes uh, during the day. And but then in their spiritual practice, they were making themselves so vulnerable in front of their entire community and, you know, going through this incredible physical pain as um, as a way of giving back to their community and, and praying for healing um, within the community. So, yeah, there's just uh, there are obviously, uh, uh, you know, very immersive, serious uh, rituals in all different kinds of traditions, but I, I've just never seen something that was this, um, you know, this exposed. Um, so yeah, I, it, it, you know, the to to have witnessed it, it makes complete sense to me that there's just no way you would ever be able to capture that on film. It's just it feels so uh, private and so far away from um, you know anything that you you would put on tape. Um, but there's a lot in the film that's, that, you know, describes some of the process and you see a lot of the men preparing. And, um, that was just one of, one of the issues with, with all of the three groups was, you know, what, how do you strike that, that line between, um, you know, conveying what this practice is about, but also, um, you know, respecting the need for the cameras to turn off at a certain point. So certainly with, you know, with Morpheus, you know, like I mentioned at Saw, when we, we didn't film the whole ritual, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have made sense and it wouldn't have been appropriate, but you get enough of an idea to really, uh, my, my goal basically was to leave viewers, um, who might not know about some of these traditions, just curious enough to, to want to know more and to evoke more of a kind of, of, of a mood, um, and a sense of, of purpose and drive on the part of the, of the, the subjects, you know? Um, so it's not, uh, you know, I've been telling people, it's not like watching a PBS film about religion in America by any means. It's very, very subjective and, and, and hopefully draws you in. And, and then you want to go and find out a little bit more. Alex, one of the things about the film is that it really connects these, these three very different people from very different backgrounds. And being able to watch the film, I was really amazed at how similar we we all are 
you know, at the, anybody who works with any type of mysticism and, and a belief in the spirit world and, and working with ancestors, um, I, I think we have this tendency in the neo-pagan movement to really separate ourselves and divide ourselves into traditions and cliques and groups and, and things like that. But we were all so similar. And, and that was, to me, that was the big message of the film was uh, as a pagan walking into this was seeing all of these, these really interesting connections um, that I had to chuck you know, that I had to Kubla as, as a witch and, you know, here's a spiritualist and, oh, I didn't know I had that much in common with this person. So I was really impressed with that. But as the filmmaker, did you, did you really pick up on that? Was that, was that your intention um, to, to really streamline these, these three people together in the way that you had, or was that just a process that just kind of happened on itself? Well, it was sort of a, it, it was a hunch that I had going into this. Um, obviously, you know, the film's called American Mystic and, and, even just with the title alone, you're presuming some kind of connection between these three characters. They're all in the same film, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And um, through you know working with my editor, who um, is this guy named Andy Grieve, who's incredibly uh, you know he's a fantastic editor. He's worked with Errol Morris, and 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 one of the big challenges for us was you know visually and tonally how to construct the film in a way where the viewer starts to see those connections pretty naturally as we go from scene to scene. Um, even though, you know, on the surface, someone in on a farm in upstate New York who's a spiritualist has nothing in common with, um, you know, a pagan priestess in California who was raised by, you know, uh, Hindu-inspired parents, you know, Hinduism-inspired parents, and and, and uh, who belly dances. You know, there's no... But... but um, you know, over the course of making the film, um, as I learned more and more about the subjects, I, I definitely leaned, you know, I steered our conversations towards things that I saw that they had in common, you know, threads through their personal lives and family lives, um, you know, maybe, you know, the, the similarities I saw in terms of, you know, what was the moment at which they turned to the tradition that they're they're practicing now, Um you know, it was definitely about trying to to create those relationships, and and I think, um, I think that, it, for me, that was the purpose of of the film. Ultimately, you know, it felt it felt very, for me, it was very idealistic um, or romantic or something. This idea that you know, wow, we're we're so far apart, and all of the labels and categories that we use for ourselves really emphasize that distance. But in reality you know, we're all working hard to pay our rent, we love our families, and, and you know, but we want to feel connected to something even bigger. Like, what is it that gives meaning to our lives? And you can call it, you know, Buddha, you can call it spirit, you can call it, um, you know, any number of things. But these are just different ways of, of, of you know, asking, asking the big question. And um, so... So yeah, I don't know if that makes it, maybe I sound very romantic when I when I when I speak this way, but but um, I just hadn't seen a film that dealt with spirituality on those terms. You know, I don't want to hear about another Christian megachurch uh, that's sweeping the nation. I don't want to hear about another reason why uh, radical Islam is separating us, or it, you know, like actually, what's what's bringing us together? And and let's look at groups that. You know, that's part of why I chose groups who are 
who are much more in the minority than the mainstream in this country because there would be less baggage involved. There, you know, there's less political baggage. There's less of a sense of, oh, okay, I already know everything about this group, so um, you know, I don't need to listen closely. You know, a lot of people don't know much about spiritualism. So, so hopefully it starts out, you know, if, let's say I, I, I had as an ideal viewer, you know, a, a young evangelical Christian somewhere in the Midwest um, who maybe hadn't been exposed to people of, of many other different belief systems. And, and uh, maybe that person turns on the film and they start out at a, at a, you know, from a position of total alienation. And then, you know, that person meets these three subjects and is sort of drawn in by how very human and accessible and interesting they are and how warm and, and um, you know, how accessible their stories are as individuals. And by the end, maybe, you know, maybe that person sees a way to connect the dots between Christianity and, um, you know, Lakota practice. Um, so that was, so I guess on some level, there was this, this very very subtle, uh, you know, impetus to kind of think about, um, you know, tolerance and things that actually bind us together. Alex, if, if we want to find out more about the film, where can we go? Well, we have a Facebook page, so you can search for American Mystic on Facebook. And there's also the website, which is AmericanMysticTheMovie.com, and you can actually see the visuals for the trailer there, too. Um, and, you know, definitely, um, you know, join the Facebook page because there, I'm, I'm updating it all the time. And we're going, you know, as I said, we're going to have this big screening at, at uh, PantheaCon and, you know, the DVD release, which so that's all all starting in February. This is the film to see. Uh, there's there's no question about that. I was I was completely amazed, and I, I can tell you, walking in, I had a, a preconceived kind of notion of what this film was going to be about. Walking out, I was totally uh, wrong, and I was really happy about that. Um, so if if you're going to see one movie this year, if you're going to see one film, it is American Mystic. You will not be disappointed. Again, if you want to find out more information about the film, you can visit their website, which is www.americanmystic.com. And uh, join the Facebook page because social networking is what it's all about these days. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on the show. <laughs> Thanks. It was great being here. And, uh, and, and for those of you who don't know, this is actually the second interview that I got to do with Alex because uh, we had some Mercury retrograde issues. So uh, <laughs> she took time out twice to be, to be on the show and to uh, talk to you guys at home. So, Alex, thank you so much once again. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing you at PantheaCon. Great. See you then, Devin. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, that was the show. Um, again, I do apologize. I'm a little under the weather, so um, I, I, I don't know. I just I expect high standards with my show. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so I do apologize. And hopefully next month I won't be so sick. Um, so, yeah. All right. Um, so Paul and I were not able to get together this month and work on uh, him getting on the show to do the astrology. And he sent me a, a, a script um, and it's all very well written and I'm, I'm going through it and I'm realizing that I cannot articulate the same way that Paul can articulate. Um, so instead of reading it to you and fumbling through the whole thing, um, I'm going to post it on Facebook and I'll post it on the live journal account as well. So if you're interested, definitely check that out. There's some interesting things with the moon, um, this month that you are definitely going to want to read if you're into, uh, using astrology for witchcraft. So 
check that out. Again, I'll put it on the uh, Facebook and on the Live Journal. If you haven't already, become a fan of the Modern Witch Podcast on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Modern Witch Podcast. Um, we put a lot of information on there, and uh, we've got a lot of discussions, a lot of really cool stuff going on. So check us out there as well. Um, Aside from that, you know, we've got our YouTube channel and there's always videos and stuff. There's a video on the show. I always put it onto the, the uh, YouTube channel so that you guys can see it at home. Um, all kinds of stuff out there with the Witchy Web. Check out our website again, uh, themodernwitchpodcast.com. Uh, we've got all kinds of really neat stuff, Book of Shadows, the whole nine yards. So check all that out. Uh, yeah, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, this month. It's it's always a pleasure to to be here, and uh, hopefully next month I won't be so under the weather. Happy New Year to all of you out in uh, podcast land, and I really hope that this year brings you many blessings, lots of love, and all that good stuff. So thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't already, check us out on iTunes. Uh, and uh, all right well have a happy month thank you so much our music today was provided by sj tucker and uh, of course our theme music is provided by uh, hungry lucy with their song in the circle Just